Am I, am I on? Am I live? Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a privilege to, to be here. Um, again, kick-starting this Easter series. We're going to have a look at uh, Easter from a slightly different angle. Um, I had a guy come up to me after the first service, and he, he, he was quite disappointed. He felt shortchanged because he'd expected me to preach for 40 minutes, and I only spoke for 25. So I said to him, well, you can have your money back. Um, so I think he took it from the tithe basket, but uh, I'm not advocating that. Um, I want to give you an insight into what it's like to prepare for a sermon at, at, uh, at, at Olive Trees. What happens is Paul asks you to preach, and you get sent this email with this link, and you click into it, and there's this utter thesis that appears before you, where he starts outlining the sermon series, who's going to be speaking, what, when, where, which location, what the theme is, and then we start going to the different verses, the structure, that we're all going to stop talking to the same thing over the next three weeks. He starts using multisyllabic words that I can't understand, so I now start getting into a dictionary of the source and a concordance and this and I'm now more scared about actually understanding what I'm preaching about than actually doing the sermon so I'm hoping I'm going to do a fairly good job of, of uh, landing there today and the other thing is like you actually need to also prepare for attire I'm not the most fashion conscious guy around my wife went and bought me a pair of skinny jeans I drew the line I said we're not going to go there just yet I'll get there at some stage but uh, just let, let me ease into it um, you know I, I didn't really enjoy Easter as a kid if I'm honest, um, Christmas loved it. Um, you know, I grew up in a Christian household. Um, my folks used to take me to church, and then as I got a bit older, they allowed me to choose when I went. And I kind of progressed to that twice a twice a year stage, which was generally Christmas and Easter. Christmas was just much more fun. Even I kind of finished the year. Um, presents are being dished out, everybody's in a good mood, everybody's on holiday, family comes around, which is not the greatest, but family comes around, which is fantastic, and, uh, but now you go back to Easter, Easter's not really that fun, you're talking about death, and like tradition, and there's Lent, and there's fasting, stuff that just really didn't excite me, um, and I kind of have to admit, I used to leave Easter feeling, I didn't really get this whole salvation thing, somebody dying on a cross, it wasn't that great, and I left feeling like a really bad Christian, because it didn't seem so significant to me, Christmas was just far more, was it, um, so if you're kind of in that, in that space, hopefully you can identify with, with the message today, um, and you're going to find that you sort of broadly split into two categories today. There's going to be a number of you who've come and you, you aren't Christian. The reason you're here is because this is what starts happening at Easter. Your other half has dragged you here, or you've come because you want your kids to experience part of um, kids' church, which is great. Or maybe you have been Christian and you've drifted for a long time, and you're, sort of, you're making a, a reappearance. Well, the great news is this message has been specifically tailored for you. And for the rest of you who are seasoned campaigners, so you're a Christian, you gave your life a long time ago, and you've sort of walked the path, and, and things might seem a bit dry, well, the great news is this message has been written just for you. So I'm hoping that everybody's going to leave with just a little bit of something that's going to give you uh, greater clarity into the character of Christ as we go through the Easter story. I'm just going to pray quickly. Can we close our eyes? Father, thank you. Thank you for the greatest story ever told. Thank you that you prepare our hearts to receive your word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword. And I thank you that you will meet us where we are at today. I pray if nothing else, we will leave with a greater understanding of your kindness and your love for us as a people. 
You are so welcome in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to consider the viewpoints and some sort of sideshows of predominantly the Pharisees leading into and, and after the kind of Easter, the crucifixion. And this should hopefully give you a bit more of an insight into your own character. So I don't know about you, but I would often read the Bible and I would read about the flawed characters and I'd be like, I so wouldn't make that same mistake. I mean, Samson, what on earth were you doing? Why did you cut your hair? Like you had everything laid out before you. Why did you go and marry outside of the tribe that you went meant to marry to? I so never would have done that. I mean, David, seriously, you've got everything laid out in front of you. You, you get sidetracked and almost derail God's plan for your whole life. I mean, Peter, standing there, he's walked with Jesus. He's his disciple. He's knows, he knows who he's dealing with. And when you associate with him, no, 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 not me. I'm like, you idiot. Like, seriously? I so wouldn't have done that. But kind of as my sort of spiritual maturity grew, I kind of realized that chances are I probably would have made some very similar mistakes to a lot of the flawed characters that we read about in the Bible. And today we're going to be looking at the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the teachers of, of Israel. They upheld the law. They were fine, upstanding pillars of society at the time. And we look at them now as these kind of harsh, judgmental, uh, just, they, were just, they were just so wrong. And what, what they did to Jesus was just so awful. But when I stop and unpack it a bit, I realize chances are there's probably a bit of that Pharisee, maybe more than just a bit of that Pharisee, who's still in me today. So as you listen to the sermon, try not to be judge and jury. Try not to have that, that lens and try and think, how would I have reacted in that political climate, the peer pressure that would have existed, the societal norms? Would I have acted any differently? In actual fact, how does it play out in my life today? Do I still have a bit of that, the Pharisee in me? So the first story is that of, of uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an influential man of his time. He was, if you know who Ravi Zacharias is, he's like a Ravi Zacharias. Theologically very, very smart. And Jesus actually described him as the teacher of Israel. He was part of the Sanhedrin. And we pick up the story in the Passion Translation in um, John chapter 3. It says, Now there was a prominent religious leader among the Jews named Nicodemus, who was part of the sect called the Pharisees and a member of the Jewish ruling council. One night he discreetly came to Jesus and said, Master, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one performs the miracle signs that you do unless God's power is with them. Jesus answered Nicodemus, listen to this eternal truth. Before a person can achieve God's kingdom realm, they must experience a rebirth. Nicodemus said, Rebirth? How can a gray-headed man be reborn? It is impossible for a man to go back into the womb a second time and be reborn. Jesus answered, I speak an eternal truth. Unless you are born of water and spirit wind, you will never enter God's kingdom realm. For the natural realm can only give birth to things that are natural, but the spiritual realm gives birth to supernatural life. You shouldn't be amazed by my statement. You must be born from above. For the spirit wind blows as it chooses. You can hear its sound, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. So so it is within the hearts of those who are spirit-born. Then Nicodemus replied, But I don't understand what you mean. How does this happen? Jesus answered, Nicodemus, aren't you the respected teacher in Israel, and yet you don't understand this revelation? 
Nicodemus was born in about 1 BC. He's roughly the same age as Jesus. He's now kind of talking like for like, and he's entering into a massively theological debate, and I'm not going to actually try and break that down. Um, But here is a man who has the respect of those around him. In the synagogue, he probably walks in and the crowd passes. He goes to the local restaurant. He's not waiting in the queue. He's ushered to the front of the table. He's esteemed in his society. The Romans actually delegated a lot of authority to the Pharisees in terms of running this particular region. Now, he's got a lot of respect. It's a sense of identity, his sense of self-worth. But he's beginning to question whether what he says is true. He's a product of his own teaching. This is the way. This is the law that you must uphold. I'm an example of what you need to do. But he's starting to doubt. He says, your miraculous signs are evidence God is with you. So he starts to recognize that what he thinks is truth might not be truth. It might be something slightly different. And he's beginning to realize that his ladder of success is now leaning up against the wrong wall. He's climbed that ladder and he's climbed it well and he's at the top. But he's realized it might need to be lined up against that wall. And that's quite an adjustment. To begin to admit that you might be wrong is something that we all struggle with. But this is an enormous situation. Later on we read in John 12, 42... Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they couldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. Can you see yourself in this situation? You might be the boss at work. Everybody kind of respects you. When it comes to the social functions, you lead the charge. You are the person. You are the go-to. You're the one who always drums it up. Come, guys, we're going. You're the last to leave. You know the bar. You you are the one, and everybody looks to you. And you suddenly start going, "Oh, I'm I'm not sure that actually this is what I'm meant to be doing." And now you start adjusting your position. But but hang on, hang on. Hang on. You're, you're the social, you're the socialite. You know we kind of look to you for inspiration. And now you start going, "I'm I'm not sure we should be going to that place of ill repute." People's opinions start to shift. Or you might be the life group leader at Olive Tree. Everybody looks to you because you know the Bible backwards. You, you've got an answer for everything. You've been a Christian for 50 years. Everybody looks to you for the answers. And you, you're, you're esteemed. You walk in and people revere you. But the reality is you've got this deep, dark sin that you're struggling with. And to admit it, to admit it to other people, might be you might not be as esteemed as people think you are. Can we see how we become trapped by our opinions? while we become held back by the truth that starts to present itself and we're not willing to adjust and start looking for the truth. In our politically correct environment, tolerance, everybody's opinions count, let every voice be heard, collective, let's hear it together, until someone starts to present the truth, which might claim exclusivity. Oh, hang on a second. That's very exclusive. We don't like that opinion. We've been very biased, intolerant. Shame them. What happens if what we believe is true? Are we that willing to stand up and proclaim what we know to be true for fear of rejection of others? I think it's something which we can identify with on a regular basis. 
The second story is in Matthew 27. And we read from 38 to 44. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, who you, are, who, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So the Pharisees are there. Just Here's the guy who's been such a big threat to them. Now what they do is, here he is. He's on the cross. He's not saving everyone. Like he is. He's not the king he said he was. And they start to hurl insults at him. And what they don't realize is the words they proclaim are actually proclaiming the gospel. You see, as a sideshow, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that says the glory of God is to conceal a treasure and the glory of a king is to seek it out. And the king is everybody in this room. When God buries a treasure, it is to our glory to dive in and find the nugget that is being exposed. And what is happening here is the greatest story, the salvation story happening. And when you read it, the Pharisees are are actually proclaiming the gospel. When you dive into it and you look at the verses and what is being said, you realize they're actually proclaiming exactly what Christ came to do. Verse 42 says, He saved others, but he can't save himself. The truth is, he saved others because he wouldn't save himself. Not because he couldn't, but because he wouldn't. When Jesus is lying on that cross, he actually makes a decision, I'm not going to save myself. I'm doing this because this is the will of my Father, and I'm here to save those whom my Father wants to be saved. He was also secure. As the king of Israel, he is the king, he knows he's the king, and now they laughed him. Oh, you're the king. Get yourself down from the cross. Come take those nails out. Get down from the cross. Let's see if you can really do it. He didn't need to prove them wrong. He didn't need to prove, I actually am the king. Let me show you how to do this. Others' opinions didn't worry him. He didn't bother about it. You see, God didn't rescue him, not because God didn't want him, but because God wanted us. Now, as a parent, you'll be able to understand this. If you had to make a choice between your child dying and somebody who doesn't really like you dying, your natural inclination would be to choose your child or a parent or a family member. You get where I'm going with this. But the reality is God chose the people who didn't really like him. And you're kind of going, but oh, come on, he's God. He knew the story. He knew what was going to happen. Yes, but he was, Jesus was fully human. The pain that God was feeling was exactly the same as you or I would feel. Yet he still chose those who didn't love him over his one and only son. And you dwell on the magnitude of what that actually meant. In verse 43... So instead of confirming that he was the Son of God, he made adoption possible for all of us. 
I struggled for years with this concept of, you know, we needed to be saved and the law and all that. And somebody distilled it for me once very, very nicely, in a short soundbite. So it's as simple as this. The rules of the game were, you don't sin, you go to heaven. You sin, you die. And if you sin, you needed to make restitution, otherwise you died. And now what happened for the first time in history, somebody who didn't sin died followed exactly the same route as all the sinners, they were put to death. Now the game changed. The rules that were in application needed to be rewritten. And God went, right, we're going to rewrite the rules. All you have to do now is you have to believe in my son, and that is sufficient. You don't need to keep all that list of rules. You just need to believe in my son, and that will be sufficient. You see, here's the thing. God's mercy and kindness don't look like we expect it. If I had to say to you, mercy and kindness, what's the first image come to mind? It's probably a mom swaddling her young child in her arms, and some sheep jumping somewhere, nice and easy. It doesn't look like a man on a cross being beaten, stabbed, bleeding, nailed. Mercy and kindness, that isn't the picture that you kind of would envisage. But... Just because I don't understand that, it doesn't make it any less true. What do I mean by that? Well, you might not believe in gravity. That's your opinion. You're fully entitled to your opinion. But it doesn't change the fact that gravity exists. And if you want to test it, there's a balcony outside. You're welcome to try that afterwards. You might want to throw yourself yourself off of it after my sermon. I'm not uh, advocating you go there. But you'll find out pretty quickly that your opinion doesn't count. There is a hard truth that exists regardless of your opinion. You see, your level of belief does not affect the level of truth. The truth is the truth, whether you believe it or not. And you see, God's mercy and kindness play out in our everyday situation, even though we might not see it. Like the Pharisees, not seeing the gospel playing out in front of them. We might not see God in our everyday situation. I shared back in January, um, my wife developed headaches continually, um, 24-7. She was on medication for, I don't know, the better part of two, three months almost, 24-7, and developed double vision. We were seeing neurologists who were going MRI scans. We were doing everything that we could, and the doctors couldn't diagnose it. Um, I mean, all the worst stuff was being thrown up and looking at autoimmune diseases and this and that and this and that. Eventually he said to us, he said, guys, I can't diagnose it. But he said, in the minority of cases where we can't diagnose it, in the minority of cases it gets better. So like the minority of minority of cases it might get better. The, thing, the great news is she is completely headache-free. Her vision is 95% restored. She still wears the eye patch and looks like Sinbad running around. But the reality is when I was in the doctor's rooms... I didn't see the hand of God. When we were going for the MRIs, I didn't see the hand of God. When she was looking at me funny and looking for God and said she sees two of me, I didn't see God. But his hand was still there. The fact that I didn't see it didn't mean God wasn't still moving. The third story, in Acts 5, Christ has died and, and, and risen again. You see, 
What's happened now is the Pharisees are kind of scrambling because this had been prophesied. Um, they'd put guards in front of the tomb. Uh, they didn't want the story sort of uh, to actually play out. Um, and they actually know the truth of what has happened. But this is now fast forward to after the crucifixion where the disciples are now preaching the gospel. And I want to pick it up in Acts 5. It says, When they heard this, they were infuriated and determined to murder him. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a noted religious professor who was highly respected by all, stood up. He gave orders to send the apostles outside. Then he said to the council, Men of Israel, you need to be very careful about how you deal with these men. Some time ago, there was a man named Theodos who rose up, claiming to be somebody. He had a following of about 400 men, but when he was killed, all of his followers were scattered and nothing came of it. After him, in the days of the census, another man rose up, Judas the Galilean, who got people to follow him in a revolt. He too perished, and all of those who followed him were scattered. So in this situation, you should leave these men to themselves. For if this plan or undertaking originates with men, it will fade and come to nothing. But if this movement is of God, you won't be able to stop it. And you might discover that you were fighting along God all along. See, they're kind of recognizing there might be some truth to this. Gamaliel's words convinced the council. So they brought the apostles back and had them severely beaten, and they ordered them never to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. You may even discover yourself fighting against God all along. They now have the benefit of hindsight. They know what actually happened. And here you've got men who are now preaching the gospel and starting to grow. And the same problem that they had before Christ died is now popping up. But they were so pinned to their viewpoints, what they believed to be true, that they would refuse to see what was actually happening in front of them. So we started out talking about Nicodemus, and if you feel like Nicodemus, you are in great company. But the good news is the Nicodemus story actually ends quite well. So he leaves the interplay with Jesus probably more certain on his uncertainty, and now he's really starting to question it. And in John chapter 7, he actually publicly defends Jesus. He says, does our, he says to the other Pharisees, does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? At which point the crowd turn on him. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has come from Galilee. He's now beginning to nail his colors to the mast. The crowd is now turning on him. He's now at risk. The position that he was in is now starting to change. And we don't hear about him again until after Christ is crucified. At what point in John 20, Joseph of Arimathea gets permission to take Jesus' body to the tomb. He's accompanied by none other than Nicodemus, who's carrying 50 kilograms of spice and myrrh to embalm Jesus' body. He's gone, that was my ladder. I've now dropped down, and I'm now on this ladder. I might be on the very bottom rung, but I'm now on this ladder. You see, Nicodemus didn't change Nicodemus. God changed Nicodemus. He said, God, I've just got a little bit of faith, just that little mustard seed. I've got a little bit there. Would you do the rest? And God started changing him, and his viewpoint changed. You see, when we begin to believe the truth, our lives change. So I grew up in a Christian house. Um, I think I gave my life when I was 14, but then I kind of drifted, backslid, um, and really kind of questioned where I was at. Um, and I remember one night, it was my last year at university, um, I was sitting, sitting in 
sitting in bed, I had an exam the next day. Um, there's a bunch of stuff going on, and, and, and I wasn't in a good place. And I remember the lights out, and I remember lying there saying, well, sitting up saying, God, if you're real, show me. It's like this power hit me. Like electricity comes through my body. I, thought, I opened up my eyes and thought, I don't know, it's load shedding or something. But I rolled over, and I was like, I'm not, it's just my imagination. I went to sleep. And about four years later, I am. Um, I went to an Alpha course that was actually run at the church that Paul's dad was pastor at. And on that Alpha course, I, I gave my life and I experienced the Holy Spirit. And what I experienced then was the same as I'd experienced four, four years ago. God didn't change. Even though I didn't recognize him, he was still faithful. And over this time, God has changed me. Uh, I mean, I was really kind of scared of this whole kind of Christian thing. Just like, well, I'm not up for big change. I said, I'm a very conservative guy. I'm an accountant. I don't like big change. And I genuinely believe God's rolled out like a salvation model for accountants. Because if we don't do this, there are a whole bunch of accountants in hell. Yeah, things just, um, things changed. God changed me. He knew where I was at. And I can say, I'm closer to the Nicodemus who helped take the body to the tomb that I am the Nicodemus who met Jesus questioning. Not because I'm special. I can honestly say, I love Jesus. And you hear that and you kind of go, come on, that's just weird. Like, how can you love Jesus? Like, you believe in him. Like, we kind of get that, the big story and all that. We believe in Jesus. We can't say you love him. Or, like, oh, Gavin, you're so holy. You love Jesus. It's like, well, I do. I still have to apologize to my kids regularly for the things that I do wrong. My wife, after 15 years yesterday, just realized that I am not perfect. The fact that I am not perfect doesn't change the fact that I love Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus loves me. They say the most important thing in you finding God is God finding you. And the reality is, God found you way before you ever found him. Sometimes I wonder if we do a bit of a, a very good sales marketing pitch for Christianity. Salvation is free. Just accept it. It's free. No cost. It's free. But I think if you look right at the bottom, there's a little asterisk that says T's and C's apply. And if you go and read those terms and conditions, they will say something like this. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. You see, when you begin to see the truth, it will cost you the lies that you believe. Your bank balance does not guarantee your certainty. It doesn't. The relationships of loved one around you doesn't give you your sense of identity. Your position at work doesn't give you your sense of identity. But when you start to grab hold of the truth, you actually want to pay the price because you realize it is so much better than what I did believe to be true and you're willing to make the sacrifice. This is not a condemnation, me- condemnation message. Graham, is Graham here? Is he outside? No, Graham, you want to just come up and just play, please? This is not a condemnation message. This is a grace message. God gives you the freedom to choose. Can I ask you you all to stand, please? I just just want to close off in, in prayer.
If you're feeling condemned, please don't. You will never, ever be good enough. So you can end it now. You'll never be good enough. Can we close our eyes, please? Lord, thank you that we had a, we had a word this morning. We were praying before the service, and one of the ladies said she just had this word, fear. That someone is going to come today with fear. They kind of hear this message, and they kind of understand it and kind of hear it, but are scared, scared to maybe take that step. Maybe you haven't, maybe you've come back to church today for the first time in a long time. You've drifted. But you're seeking him again. God wants to reignite his relationship with you. If your heart is pounding, if you've never made that decision to accept Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Nobody else is going to see. If you have drifted from God for a while and you know that your relationship with him needs to be restored, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Your heart is pounding, chances are you. Thank you. See that hand. If your heart is pounding, it's probably you. And you don't need to be scared. He will never embarrass you, ever. Father, I thank you that you meet us where we are at. I thank you for the those hands that were raised for the decision taken to restore their relationship with you to accept you, Jesus, as Savior, as Lord of all. We thank you that you died on the cross that you could make the way for us. Father, you are an amazing God. You are a comforter, you are a restorer, you are a healer, you are a forgiver. You extend grace. Thank you for joining us today. We are going into the Easter series. We have a sunrise service next week. Would you please invite your friends? Um, this promises to be a great series, so thank you for joining us. Please, won't you stay, have some coffee outside, make a connection. If you are visiting, please come up and introduce yourself. It would be lovely to meet you. Thank you.